0: This episode is sponsored by Mind, Body, Green classes and trainings where you can learn from world-class experts from the comfort of your own home. The Mind, Body, Green class library has educational programs you can't find anywhere else. From yoga and meditation to nutrition and personal growth, our classes have something for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a wellness warrior, Mind, Body, Green classes will take you further on your wellness journey. You can find our classes at mindbodygreen.com slash classes. That's mindbodygreen.com slash classes. Enter the promo code podcast on checkout to receive 15% off your next purchase. Dr. Samantha Boardman has all the degrees that you'd wanna see from your psychiatrist. She's a clinical instructor in psychiatry and attending psychiatrist at the Weill Cornell Medical College. She received her BA from Harvard, her MD from Cornell University Medical College, and an MA in Applied Positive Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. She's the founder of the website Positive Prescription, and she's one of the best and brightest in positive psychiatry today. Hey, it's Jason Wachub, and here we are at Mind Body Green HQ in Brooklyn for the Mind Body Green podcast with the amazing Dr. Samantha Boardman. Thanks for being here. I'm
1: thrilled to be here. Thanks. So
0: I want to start with your childhood. So you grew up in New York. Yes. What was that like?
1: I was born in, um, in South Africa, actually, and lived in England for a while. and oh, grew wow. up in New York. And it was great. It, w- it was a very different place than it is right now. Yeah. I l- had a very sheltered existence. I was hardly allowed to go in an elevator by myself, leave alone, you know, get on the bus until I sort of busted out at 13 and rebelled. So, and w-
0: yeah, what was the sheltered existence? Like, what is that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> in New York, you know, and even go- going to Central Park then was sort of a scary thing. You weren't playing right. in the playgrounds. The sandboxes had syringes in them. So it's it was like a different 70s, world. like the 80s. Yeah, pretty, yeah, yeah. And so it was a different place. And so, I, I was just sort of a little bit terrified. I was wearing smock dresses and sort of knee socks until I rebelled.
0: <laughs> what happened when you rebelled?
1: Didn't go down so well. What you do? <laughs> but you? I was sent off to boarding school, so okay. it was okay. <laughs> but I mean, if rebellion is sort of pushing your socks down. So okay. it wasn't so bad.
0: And so you go to boarding school, you went to St. Paul's?
1: I went to St. Paul's in New Hampshire, that is one of the coldest places. I mean, even yeah. coming from New York, it was really cold. Our hair used to freeze in the morning on the way to chapel because it was so cold and there was a sort of big, beautiful pond that would freeze before it snowed. So it was, it was black ice and you yeah. could actually look down and see the sort of frozen fish mid sort of swim. So it was very cold up there, but beautiful and a magical place and living um, you know, in dorms, boys and girls, and I learned a lot.
0: And then, well, you did learn a lot because then you went to Harvard, right?
1: No, uh, some reason, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure they made a mistake. They do make mistakes occasionally. But yes, I took a year off. I graduated after 11th grade and I took a year off then and I took a year to sort of live and work and travel and do. So sort of, I think I probably wasn't ready to go to college and I didn't realize it. Harvard did. And uh, they said, take a year, do whatever you want and then come. And uh, I spent time in Europe, I went to South America, I worked in sort of in the art world, I worked at an animal hospital, right. I did all sorts of different things. And it was a great journey, and I think sometimes kind of looking back, it was a lot of things I didn't want to do, but it's right. valuable, you know, learning to sort of check something off your list, that you right. you know, sort of thought you might have wanted to be a, a part of. And so it was a good year and a year of growth, and by the time I went back to college, you know, with, with my class, technically, I was... Um, Really excited to go back to school again, and right. I think I'd been kind of burned out from just working my tail off before that.
0: And so, when do you decide to pursue psychology?
1: It was when I was in college. I was a history major, and then towards science, so it was my junior year. I missed science, and then it was just you know sort of I just taken the science requirements and put them aside, and I realized how much I really missed biology and chemistry, and so I decided I wanted to be pre-med. And I I looked, then I could do that. I mean, it wasn't a major. I remained a history major. And I was really interested in the history of science in medicine and how um, you know we often think of science occurring in a vacuum, that people are asking questions that aren't necessarily completely objective. They're pretty subjective in a way. And it was right after World War II, for example, they were trying to find the source of evil in the world. And there was a famous professor at Yale who was doing experiments on bulls. He would put these electrodes in their brains and dress up like a matador and do these huge demonstrations. I mean, it would have been easier to study mice, you know, and then, you know, using this remote-controlled device would try to, you know, activate portions of their brain that he thought induced aggression. And sort of looking for the source of evil, and this was in, you know, the wake of World War II. So it's always, I think, the questions that we're asking or so scientists are asking are are culturally embedded, you know, and really sort of part of the fabric of of the sort of, you know, social um, and cultural world that we're right. inhabiting. And that became very interesting to me. Yeah.
0: So, like, talk to me. So, you know, something we think about a lot, you know, social groups. So, you know, if you go to, if you grew up in Manhattan and you go to boarding school and then you go to Harvard, like I look at my friends from Columbia, you know, it's like they go to finance or they go to law or um, like, what, what was that like? Were you like always drawn to science you're like you know what i'm sure a lot of your friends went that direction or art or travel or like you know what i don't even want to work but but you're like but you're going in this different direction
1: yeah you know it's funny and i think we are so influenced by our peer group especially
0: in your teens and 20s like yeah. It's like, oh I'm doing that. Well that sounds good too.
1: And you're just sort of on that bandwagon. And there's no Google yeah. back
0: then either, where no. you can research or LinkedIn or
1: And there was just sort of a narrative. You were just kind of following sure. the like narrative that's what people did. in a way. Yeah. And I had a lot of friends. I mean a lot of friends going to Wall Street. That was a great you know, there were all those great intern sort of programs and I had done enough during that year off that I'd kind of realized, wait, maybe that stuff's not for me. And I'd always assumed when I was younger that that probably would be the path I would take and right. somewhere sort of in business or you know, maybe looking even into fashion or the art world. Sure. And this was something that I, I did realize and actually working with animals was when I worked at a, an animal hospital made me I was became sort of intrigued by the body and the brain and it had never been an option to me. I never really had known anyone who'd gone to medical school and I'd nobody in my family who had. And so when it sort of did present itself as an option, I thought, let me try this and I was never I've never been that smart, but I've always, I've known I could outwork anybody. And so it was really hard for me kind of coming into it from somebody who sort of put the sciences aside and the, you know, oh, that's not for me. And then kind of coming back around into it. But
0: So what did your parents say when you made this decision?
1: They actually thought I was nuts. My mother still thinks <laughs> I went to nursing school. And, um, and they're like, oh, you know, good luck with that. And you know, not not unsupportive, but they just, it was, it was right. very foreign to them. that right. They sort of thought, like, you know, I should probably get married and do something else. But it was, I mean, they, they, they were supportive in the end. And I had a, I worked my tail off to get into medical school, did lots of research. I worked in a cancer lab at Son Kettering for a while right. and um, running gels. It's pretty tedious, but can be interesting work, especially when you, there's some sort of finding. We were looking right. at cell cycle. And, and then went to medical school for four years at Cornell that's in Manhattan as well. And then I did my residency in psychiatry. So I sort of it was a full circle. I can maybe put the breadcrumbs together. Right. If I have this interest in history and in science and history of science. And then sort of ending up back in psychiatry, which is also right. about sort of narratives and stories.
0: And so you mentioned, I thought this was interesting, the balance of work versus call it aptitude. What is that about? Like what, what do you see in people and like what is your philosophy there? Like how far, you know, is like what's the Woody Allen line, like 80% of Oh. showing up or like how much, how much can you like produce? perspiration, perspiration and, Inspiration. Yeah, there are lots yeah. of quotes on that but. yeah
1: I uh, know I truly believe you know I think a lot of us like we look at somebody who's successful and we just assume like wow that person's just either so lucky right. or they're just so smart and you know they've just so skilled they're such an amazing basketball player like they right. just were born this way right. and then when you sort of reach into their stories a little bit you'll see like how hard they've worked, how they've applied kind of what they know. And it's it's sort of easy to sort of chalk someone else's success right. in different domains up to sort of luck or, or, you know, being born some way. But it's, it's not, um, I think the, the case really, when you ask them about their stories and I, I truly believe And Angela Duckworth always uses, you know, her, sure. she coined the term grit, Good. but it's that sort of passion and perseverance, even in the face of negative feedback and kind of being able to work through something and see, I think sometimes like disappointments or setbacks more as challenges right. in some way and, and learning to do that and, and sort of seeing sort of somehow over the fence.
0: I have a couple questions on this. So like, what is it about, you know, Colleen and I joke about this, like, you know, hopefully we're, we do well enough that our child can do whatever they want. They don't have to work or whatever. But then it's like, well, how do you motivate the child? Right. How do you motivate? Like, what is it about you that kept you so motivated? And then how can you... Is it something you can teach?
1: You know, it's it's something that also around my kids, I'm sort of fa- you know fascinated by that question, too. And looking back, I'm not sure what kind of spurred me on other than that it was sort of intrinsically gratifying. And I think when you're doing things that are intrinsically interesting to you, that you're not doing it because your dad wants you to go to law right. school or your mom wants you to be a doctor, like you're doing it because you, for the love of the game, like it's truly, pas- you're passionate about it. And like research really does suggest, and I think it's true is, even when you do experience sort of difficulties or setbacks, it right. it's much easier than to kind of, when, when you're doing it because it matters to you and your value system, that it really, it, it's tapping into like a deeper motivation. It's right. more than like that superficial one that when you do get knocked down a little bit, then you're just like, you're done. Right. And then the other side of it is sort of, <laughs> The, the, it seems so like functional, but like an end user <laughs> in some right. way. Like when you're thinking about, like, who benefits from this? Like, it's not just you, but there's other benefit in what you're right. doing. I think that's also really helpful. So, there's a interesting paper on like how you how do you convince kids to do things that are like boring but important and. You know, sort of like paying your taxes—like it's boring but important. But what can you do? Um, and I think it's sort of tapping into your own motivations, your intrinsic ones, but also seeing the value that there is to others out there. And I think that kind of combination too is maybe the secret sauce of motivation. And,
0: and is there a way to? So part of it seems like it's—it has to be a labor of love. But but sometimes that's not always the case. There are people who are passionate about things, but when they when push comes to shove, they give up. Like how how is that? how can you ingrain that in children? Like my mother will always say like, well, you know, I used to uh, race you up the stairs and, and create reward, you know, mm-hmm. when we talk about like why I'm competitive, right? you know, and I don't even know if that's true, but I'm like, absolutely. I love my mother, did a great job. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> right. Like what is, what, what is it like with, how, how early does that start? I'm just very curious about like work ethic and passion and
1: yeah, no, I mean I think you're right there are lots of really passionate people out there who who have ex- experienced tremendous setbacks and and who've lo- left their jobs and wanted to pursue their passion something and it's really not worked out, right. you know. And and then what? You know, why why are you doing something is that just a hobby then? Right. Should it be, you know, and and sort of those choices though that we have to make and not just sort of, you know, all those graduation speeches filled with <laughs> find your passion or pursue your passion right. they then what? might not be good advice, <laughs> right. you know. So the idea of, you know, things that I think where you have that sort of it is you, you know, you do need to, you know, pay your bills and live a life right. as well. So kind of what are those choices that you're willing to what are you willing to struggle for? It's not all gonna be easy. So what are you what are you willing to actually deal with that's gonna be hard? You know, right. and there are things that are gonna be sort of tough and boring and difficult and you know, there's all this research now around the kind of rewards, like do you just reward people for right. you know, Everyone kids. gets a trophy. And, you know, that's definitely not helpful at all. But, you know, and in, in with kids, we're giving this, them this mixed message today. It's like, you're amazing, and you can do whatever you want, and you can be president one day, or, you know, an Olympic athlete. Um, but the world is a really, really scary place, and if anyone's mean to you, you come tell me. You know? So right. it's sort of like this funny little protective bubble that we're putting around them. And we're sort of, you know, oh yes, failure's great, go fail. And, you know, and it's it, it sort of, but not because the, the moment anything seems a little bit more threatening right. that kind of rushing in let me handle it for you and it's not even what they called it like helicopter parenting it's like snow plowing parenting like you know <laughs> when you're just literally moving everything out of the way just so they have like a kind of like a smooth path ahead and just you know those those little things that are really important I think that you know, this sense of competence in a child. And they almost unlearn it sometimes. You see like a little kid sitting there, you know, with their sitting on their hands as breakfast is being given to them. It's like, no, they can do this themselves. You know, not a baby, but, you know, by the time they're two or three, like pour their own cereal, do things. So
0: can you teach work ethic?
1: Yeah, I think you can. And and
0: like, when can you not? Like at a certain age, is it just...
1: Don't you think it's so sort of actually gratifying ultimately? And like when you see like little kids, I always love those studies of, I think they're like, they're even under the age of one and you see somebody, uh, a stranger drop something. And then these little kids are like even like roll sometimes who aren't crawling, like over to that thing to try to give it back to the person. Like I think we have this intrinsic need to add value somehow or contribute to something. So I think if you're kind of work ethic is it maybe not the way I'm thinking about it, but it's like sort of what are you adding value to in some way, like what are you contributing to that gives you a sense of belonging and meaning and that your experience is actually beneficial to somebody else's. And, you know, thinking like a lot of times, um, like with, with kids who are first generation going to college, there's a huge attrition rate sure. in the first year and kids who drop out. And there've been some studies looking at those kids when they're asked to write a letter to potential incoming freshmen the next year, you know, tell us what was difficult, I mean, write, write about what was difficult. What advice would you give them to help them navigate their way through their right. first year? And how unbelievably helpful that is for the freshmen who would be coming in, but also incredibly empowering for those who've written the letter. And it, you know, makes them actually want to stay. It gives them right. a sense of belonging and that their experience kind of matters. And I think that that's, that's something that's very just human right. about us, like that we think we can add some value in some way. So,
0: So what is it? that's missing from people who you know have all the wealth all the resources status you name it and are just like miserable and can't figure it out you know if you could shake that person
1: yeah they're sitting (laughs) in these park avenue offices you know and they've they've got it all
0: but but what what what's missing for for people like that
1: yeah, no, there's a lot of that, like they've got it all, but right. then they don't. And, you know, that's not people who are really clinically depressed. And sure. I think that's a different, you know, conversation. But people who sort of have it all, but then sort of feel that emptiness right. and that kind of chronic longing. And, you know, looking at people who have these kind of really full schedules and they're kind of crazy busy and frazzled, but they feel really unfulfilled right. ultimately. And kind of where is that coming from? And you know, I think they're kind of playing these games of walk-a-mole all day long and putting out fires. And so they're 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 kind of doing so much, but it's not kind of adding up to, you know, it's not giving them a sense of sort of satisfaction and meaning in some way. And they're, they're I think that sort of that belief that kind of they've got to look inside of themselves for all of the answers and they've got to kind of find themselves or discover themselves. Mm-hmm. And that once they do, it's sort of all about them right. rather than, you know, kind of looking out into the world and maybe finding inspiration in other people and contributing to something in sort of staying engaged with other people. And you look at people who are like super successful, but in their 80s and sort of alone, you know, their kids don't speak to them, their, you know, ex-wives don't speak to them and like how sad that is ultimately right. and like you know you look at all like studies of people who sort of felt that like they've lived a long and meaningful life it's it's about kind of the quality of their personal relationships investing in those literally and making the effort you know kind of somehow fortifying them and doing things that that you feel like you are, are um, contributing to that because i think we all need those sort of shoulders to lean on and that social support that um, kind of can help us feel whole because we don't exist in a vacuum. And then
0: you're not finding that on Facebook, are you?
1: Well, it's, it's not the same. <laughs> like I love it like when somebody sends me a funny video or like a cat video and like, I laugh, but it's like that shared laughter. that's different. Like when you and I right. are in a room together, like we've spoken on the phone, like whatever, We, but it's really different, that shared face-to-face thing. And there's that old philosopher who says it's not kind of, did you have a good life or not? Like at the end of the day, it's um, so our lives aren't really like a, adjectives in the end. Right. But it's like how well you live. They're, ad, they're adverbs. Did you well, live well? Well,
0: I've also heard a friend told me that there, I think it's serotonin. There, there's a there's a chemical response that happens when if something is wrong, mm-hmm. and you know you you text a loved one and say it's going to be okay, you don't receive the same chemical response which you receive when you hear the actual voice of a loved one saying it's gonna be okay. So like that, this generation of texting and Snapchat streaks and-
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's like short term. No, and look—it is—it's so easy, it's so convenient to text, and gosh, you don't have to pick up the phone and actually talk to the person. And there is some reason to believe that people actually are more honest with, um, like, therapists texting than they are face to face, because it could make it sort of uncomfortable in some way. Like, if they're asking you serious questions, maybe it is hard, like that face to face. Thing. I, I'm convinced that actually that we should do therapy, sort of walking side by side, because you know, they say huh. it's a great place for like kids to talk to their parents and teenagers. Let's do it when in the car, when you're driving, so like you're both walks. looking out. I think therapy walks would be really you helpful. have a moving
0: office, this is a new business model. Yeah,
1: not just treadmill office, like moving office, but it's, I'll, um, I'll meet you
0: at Central Park at three o'clock for your session, and we'll yeah. walk. <laughs> I
1: think you've got the added benefit of the trees and nature, right. and that sort of synchronized movement, and not maybe that kind of you know, maybe people feel judged a little bit, or that kind of face-to-face. Interesting, that could be a little hard. So, so I want to
0: go. So go back to you. So okay, you you go to medical school and you start practicing. So when you start practicing, are you loving it? Are you overwhelmed? Are you seeing things like what's what's that like? Like when you first you you're, you're fresh out of school, you start practicing. Seeing well, people.
1: School's only eight years. I know <laughs> only eight four years. years and so turkey. you get out
0: and you're. <laughs> and
1: then I mean, you know, you're 110 by the time you get out. So you do, you know, medical school, and then you have to do an internship. That's when you're like working all night and two nights or three nights in a row, and it was really hard. It was exhausting. And then I got out of um, when I started my residency. I after I start after I finished my residency, then I continued at Cornell, and I'm still on the staff there. And uh, I was seeing patients who were, you know, many different, um, I'd work in the emergency room sometimes, but all different types of mental illness. Do
0: you remember your first patient?
1: Oh, you know, I had so many. And like when you're working in the emergency room, you've got like 16 in three minutes, you know? So <laughs> it's not like, uh, you know, the, there was just kind of one like that. My first private patient, I do remember and who I still see. Oh, wow. So who who's kind of, I think, been on this journey with me as well. So I think who'd come to me with some just kind of overwhelmed complaints and sub-threshold depression. And what do I do? I kind of try to get, I mean, try to kind of, you know, deal with some symptoms, very kind of problem-based, individual-based therapy. That was, I got rid of, like, the bad stuff, but never um, kind of back to baseline, but never kind of beyond that. And so then since I'd kind of gotten interested in positive psychology, and I went to Penn and I did that um, master's in applied positive psychology, that working...
0: Well, talk to me, let's back up. So why did you decide? So I want to go back to, like, you're, you're seeing patients, and, like, what do you... I have a couple of questions. One is, what are you seeing in people? Like, are you starting to see patterns? And then I want to get to the point of you decide, like, okay, I want to go to Penn and do this program. Like, what happened in between then?
1: It's just seeing a lot of kind of um, people who are overwhelmed. Like, there yeah. was a lot of that whose internists had sent them over to me. they sort of, you know, functional, but kind of maybe it burst into tears at the internist's office or, you know, at their gynecologist's right. office. That somebody was like, I think they need a little bit of help. But, but getting by, yeah. you know, like kind of on autopilot, fine, you know, dealing, working really hard, you know, different types of relationships, but getting by, a lot of patients like that. And I had seen a patient who I had Thought you know I could help. Who's really overwhelmed with her life and her kids and her husband and you know did my typical thing. Let me dial down your misery. I was really good at misery. I do it really well and <laughs> and um it's it a skill and and so. What
0: so what is the skill for? <laughs>
1: well you know you identify. It's like you just kind of hone in on like what is their chief complaint. Like why did you walk in the office? Like why did you pick up the phone? To call the office, make the appointment, and actually show up. You know, because there's a lot of like different sort of points there where, you you know, the patient might not actually do it. Like they're given the phone number. And I can't tell you how many patients I um, have met who's like, oh, yeah, I found your, you know, your card, you know, buried underneath, you know, all of the junk that I found in like my blazer pocket or in my handbag or something. And I was cleaning out and then I thought I'd call. But there's a lot of that. So, like, what, does it take to actually make the call, you know, and then show up for the appointment? Like what's going on? Like what's the inflection point there in somebody's life? And so, you know, in general, what I always used to do was just, you know, what's their chief complaint? You know, the chief complaints, sort of like a sentence in the patient's words. And if you're like if you're a if you know you have um like a bellyache or something, it'd be like my stomach hurts would be your chief right. complaint. But uh So it's
0: not like going to the regular doctor where people just walk in like, here's my I've got a a, st- a tummy ache, or I've got headaches. People do. Do people tend to go to you right away with what's or?
1: No, no. You you'll sort of ask them for right. it. Like so, then you have to in the same way you would in any patient, a surgical patient, right. an internal um, medicine patient. Like kind of, what's the problem is right. essentially the right. question, and and you'll you know literally in your nose be like you know chief complaint is. You know, I can't focus at work. I, you know, my boss is really mean to me. I'm having a hard time with my spouse. So it's very problem focused. And then treatment kind of radiates out from that. So is it medication? Is it therapy? Is it like, what are you kind of doing to kind of help them deal with those problems and then send them on
0: their way? So at what point do you say, okay, I want to go do this positive psychology program at Penn?
1: It was actually after I got fired by a patient who was like, gosh, all we do is come here and I sit and I complain about everything going on in my life. And even if I'm having a good day, I'll come here and I have to think, like, what's wrong? What can I complain about? What's, um, you know, because I don't want to waste money talking about anything good that's going on in my life. I and mean, Wouldn't that be a waste of time? And. And the idea, and she was like, I'm just not going to come anymore. I, I think it's not helpful, and it actually makes me feel worse. And it was this wake-up <laughs> call for me. It was horrible.
0: So um, what do you do? You go home at night and dinner. You talk to your husband. So this is what happened today. What,
1: no, it was, it, it, was, it was sort of distressing because it just it was this weird moment of, wait a minute. What have I been missing right. all along? And it just, it hit home. You know, in a way that I didn't expect because, wait, she was 100% right that all I was doing if I'd had a flashlight in my hand was shining it on every problem we could find in her life and sort of, okay, what about this one? What about this one? Sort of putting out fires again. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how's everything going with that difficult boss of yours or whatever? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, wait, actually, they were really, you know, nice this afternoon or whatever. So it's that that sort of... um, that that mining for 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 problems, for issues, for conflicts, that type of thing. And it had never occurred to me to focus on anything else, to kind of, you know, think about cultivating wellness. There's always this idea that even if you did have a patient, you know, who, who was you know came to you unwell, like take care of all the problems first. Maybe then you can it's like it's an afterthought. It's right. like the cream on the cake, right? Like you can sort of do it um, after you've kind of dealt with all the bad stuff. And why can't we look for the wellness within the illness if there's a mental illness? Or help somebody stay strong within their stress? Right. And what are we waiting for? You know, to kind so, of build the so good stuff. So at what
0: point did you discover the program and decide, I'm going to do this? And
1: I think it was in 2012, and I applied to this program. Again, so you've been like, practicing
0: for a while? like
1: Yeah. Well, I think it was 2012 to 2013. I did the program there, and it was immediately just you know, I'd found my tribe, like, honey, I'm home, and just looking at mental health in its entirety, not just in this sort of problem-based, you know, focus. it was really just an amazing group of people, a hundred people at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, sorry, it wasn't a hundred, gosh, sorry, we were 30-something so are people. So were you going
0: on weekends, or you?
1: It was there, I was there a ton. It was far more work than I imagined, but how great to go back to school right. at that um, you know stage of my life. It was so much fun, and I, I thought it wouldn't be as much work, and they said, oh, you could sort of do it part-time. It was. You know, we were writing 13-page papers. It was like back to college again in that way, but so gratifying. It is that sort of good stress of hard work. What are your
0: friends in New York saying? It's like you've got kids, you're married, your friends are like, what are you doing? Sort of. I mean it, yeah. No, I, I had a friend
1: Why are you of mine doing this? who decided in her sort of later in life that she wanted to become a DJ and she went back to DJ Academy while I was at Penn, and so we're like we're paralleling I love it. in our days. I have school a thing. feeling
0: your coursework was a little more demanding, but I think so. That I was but
1: I was in awe of her for this sort of shift in her career in a way, and I thought we had this sort of parallel experience. Like, Did she period. follow
0: through? Is she a full-on DJ now? Full-on
1: DJ. Oh wow. Mad Marge. She's
0: great. Mad Marge. Really okay, maybe we'll have her ever finalize. We'll She'd talk be about that. amazing. <laughs>
1: And also, again, like sort of an inflection point where she sort of took a different path, but it was really engaging. And sometimes I do think we do go to school at the wrong time because it it was so great to be learning in a kind of formal learning environment, to be back in a university, you know, sort of environment. And it changed the way I think about everything and I think really, you know, changed the way, you know, me personally. So what's like the
0: biggest takeaway? Like if I were a patient who'd been seeing you for, 10 years, and if I walked in pre-program versus post-program, how, how, how would that, what's an example of how that dialogue with you would change?
1: You know, I, I wouldn't minimize the way, you know, I wouldn't just, you know, be like, what's great, tell me, you know, that's that some Pollyanna-style thing? But I really would have before, like the before and after is I would have been completely problem-based, laser-focused, on the issue, let's take care of this this is what we can do with this let's get rid of the stress here let's focus on that problem there and um you know we'll be good to go and i think i mean that wasn't that like i'm oversimplifying it but i think now i'm just looking at this bigger picture i you know much more interested in their actual relationships people come to see you a lot during you know a difficult point sometimes relationship driven but you know even if it's work driven or somebody's lost their job it's their relationships are also suffering in some way. And so really like kind of working on, tell me about these relationships. I wanna, you know, kind of who's close to you, who's, you know, difficult. How can we focus on that? How can we fortify that? What are the tools we can give you in an everyday way to stay strong even within your stress? Looking at how they're eating, how they're sleeping, how they're connecting with their, you know, with like their sort of, Social circle. Um, And because oftentimes I think when people are stressed out, they're kind of retreating into themselves and then they're doing the very opposite of the things that would help them feel strong Mm -hmm. and encouraging them and really kind of giving them a, a plan to do the things that are sort of going against the grain. It is sort of making choices that are reflections of their values very consciously. And I think I focus a lot more on that. So kind of rounding out, it's not that I'm not interested in the presenting issue, but also kind of fleshing them out as a full person who's living in the world, you know, and has a life beyond the 50 minutes in my office.
0: So you mentioned relationships. What do you see in romantic relationships? People, I'm assuming a lot of people come to you for that, like what are, the, what are the pitfalls there that you see?
1: You know, a lot of people just kind of going through the motions, you know, like they, you know, they've got like this sort of wonderful love story and right. then it's this, um, they're bored, you know, and I find that to be kind of this sort of sad, like is this all that there is kind of um, sort of song that's playing in the back of their head. And it's oftentimes, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a relationship, you know, couples therapist, but there's so many things i think that you know then we start just by just by it's human nature to take for granted the people we spend time with right. and to you know there's so many little ways to kind of cultivate appreciation right. for one another and looking at these studies of couples over the long term right. how can you make the effort and you know and not take things so personally and what are the little things like if somebody if you know your spouse keeps you know, dropping their wet towel on the carpet and it drives you insane, put actually like, you know, put a hamper there where they drop it. Like, there are little things that you can do, like, are they really a bad person because they, um, you know, left the cap off the toothpaste? Or that's just like what they do. And sort of moving on from that and really getting people to do new things together and to not kind of get lulled into that place of complete habit and taking for granted, right. you know, and I, I think that, that sort of appreciation thing that we we miss. We, people get gratitude really wrong, and I think it really becomes all about me. Like, I'm so grateful that I'm so happy and I have a good job or I have a good You know, it's not about you. And literally expressing, like, you know, what are you grateful for about that person in your life? Um, right. So to kind of take it away from that kind of me, myself, and I lens right. and see kind of gratitude as a, like, you know, in conversation or in dialogue with right. the other people around you or the right. world around you in some way.
0: So what have you, so you're married, you're happily married, you have two kids, like what have you learned about like your own relationship? Like you've, you know, you are got two busy, full lives, your own careers.
1: You know, to, to sort of, to look up from our phones, you know, yeah. to, I have a habit, I always leave my phone whenever I walk into the house, I turn it off and put it in the bottom of my handbag, because otherwise I know I'll look right. at it if I won't. And to just you know, especially with my husband, it's like how do I give him like my full attention? If he's right. telling me something, how do I listen? How do I engage? I'm, how do you know it's he's endlessly fascinating to me. And you know sometimes it's so easy for me to kind of be like bogged down and and not to prioritize him. And it's you know every day, I have to kind of remind myself how grateful I am for him. I make this like sort of every morning. I'll always, because I wake up before he does, I kiss him on the back before I get out of bed. And that sort of, it can at least set the tone for me. I'm not like picking up my phone, I'm not looking at it. And I think it's something that's really just, it sort of connects me to him. And I like to make him coffee in the morning. And I kind of stopped doing it for a while. I used to do it when we were sort of, you know, first married. And then I was like, ugh, I can't, you know, deal. And he wasn't waking up when I did. And it's something that's also really important to me is just these little efforts that we do for one another, and I think he's really kind of mindful about that too, and that just like, hey, wait a minute, you know, let's remember why we like each other so right. much.
0: Right. So is it the little things that make relations, it's not that one, it's the little things that erode and then lead to the big thing?
1: I think so, and I think that it's sort of, you know, what's that Muhammad Ali quote, like it's not the kind of, it's not the boulders that get us, it's the pebbles in our right, shoe. Right. And I think there's real truth in that in relationships, too. And it's kind of amazing how when you look at even like when, when big bad things happen to people, that they are actually astonishingly resilient. Like after 9-11 in New York, sure. how people were able to kind of um, collectively come together. And I think a lot of it had to do with social support and, um, and sort of being there for one another. But it's the little things, like these daily hassles that take this toll, I think, on our mental health. It's not that we can get rid of them entirely, but I think we can plan for some of them. You know, if you're, you know, if you're always losing your cell phone, keep it in the same place every day. Or you know, if there's like something that irritates you about you know, your, your significant other, just somehow either deal with it or put that hamper right. in the middle of the, the rug. So
0: getting back, so with couples that are extraordinarily successful, I'm curious, like what what goes wrong? Is part of it the quest for this isn't this idea that it's just not good enough, and I get tired? Whether like climbing, right? Like where you see like you know the the, the stereotypical oh. like third fourth mar- like they get yeah. bored. I'm curious, yeah. like how much of it is like wiring yeah. versus habit or practice?
1: I think there's a lot that can be done with the habit or practice. Because when you see just that, that erosion of novelty, you know, with right, people. Right, you see, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, kind of, it that is, you know, a skill. Like, you can really work on that. And, you know, sometimes couples, like, who kind of make it pass. Like, we're seeing more divorces, like, in their 60s now. Like, kind of oh, couples who are kind of just deciding to part ways. And, um, and also able to find, you know, gratifying relationships right. afterwards. But is, like, what can we do on a daily basis, I think, to make the effort? And one of the best pieces of advice was from this woman, um, I think she's the first woman, um, psychologist tenured at Harvard, was look for three new things about your partner every day. Just three. Like, you know, rather, because we get so, um, I think we sort of retreat into this, know-it-all phase with one another like I know he's gonna do this I know she's gonna do that and that sort of sense of like we become the expert on the other person I know the end of the movie this is the way it's gonna go and instead prime yourself like look for novelty like you're not the expert on that person like they're fully capable of changing as you are as well and and, you know just look for something that's a little different about them every day and I think it sort of changes your mindset about that autopilot mode that I think couples, it can be really deadly. So,
0: so something we've talked about, wellness narcissism. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. You know, wellness has exploded. It's great. Uh, and you always have to start with the self. You know, even in some relationship, you got to be happy with the self and get that right first. But it seems like it's maybe gone a little
1: too I think far. people have taken it too far. And, and also that... I, I mean, I'm just going to push back a little here, I'm not sure you have to be happy with yourself first.
0: Okay. You know, what
1: does <laughs> that really mean, you know, to be happy with yourself? I mean, you, you know, even over the course of an hour, you might be happy with yourself or not happy with yourself. Um, again, we're not talking about clinical patients, sure. but this idea of self-knowledge, who am I? You know, again, the graduation speeches of like, figure out who you are. You don't know, and you won't know, and you are a verb, and you will continue to figure it out. So this kind of idea that you have
0: to give a graduation speech—you <laughs> no, already the have the start right now. Speech. You don't know who you are, and you don't. Know.
1: And let it go. <laughs> but the idea that, like you know, if you chisel away at yourself, you know, like a sculptor, that like you know, this marble will emerge, and this this self will emerge, and have all the magical answers, and that, you know, again, that sort of self-focus, that self-absorption, that like sort of, um, you know, individually focused um, idea that only then can you go out into the world and be there for others. And there's a lot of research out there around this, so like like how pro-social behavior, even during difficult times, actually helps fortify you. So as a psychiatrist, I used to tell people, you know, sometimes if I felt like they were kind of doing too much, you know get rid of that stress in your life. If you're doing volunteer work, that's probably too much, you know, because sometimes it can be stressful. I had a patient who was doing pro bono work for a a client, and it was stressful, but also very meaningful. You know, so you can have these things that go hand in hand. So I was throwing out the baby with the bath saying, oh, you know, just focus on yourself right now. Like, you're doing all these other things. Just kind of keep to yourself and, you know, make sure you're okay. And that missing the point that I think we can kind of do things that are stretching ourselves that um while at the same time taking care of ourselves so why do we have to find ourselves or take care of ourselves first and then look at the other stuff um that could help fortify us afterwards as though it's an afterthought start now you know do it immediately you know build those relationships add value it's not just we know that being um you know when people have a shoulder to lean on it's great but being a shoulder to lean on also is really gratifying and i think actually kind of helps buffer a lot of the right. daily stress we see
0: so if a lot of people are defining wellness right now by you know i'm on a detox i'm doing soul cycle i'm having green juice i look fabulous i'm glowing and that's great but like how would you define it
1: I think it's just it worries me that because I think when it just sort of becomes goes into that toxic. it has been rain, a cliche. It's be- completely and and maybe it's um, you know, and, and it's 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 so self focused too, and it is really undermining their well being. You know, I'm all for self care, but is self care ultimately undermining your well being if it's <laughs> taking you away from? your friends. You know, I, I um, you know, know a young woman who's saying she couldn't go to her friend's birthdays anymore because they weren't doing them in vegetarian restaurants. You know, <laughs> or she's trying to go to bed earlier, and I'm all for sleep, but it was, you know, dinner was scheduled for 9, and she likes to go to bed now by 9.15. You know, there's these little things right. that actually, like, you've got to take a step back and think, wait a minute. You know, maybe, um, you know, this, I, I'm drinking my juices and I'm anti juicing also, so that's another thing. But, <laughs> but maybe, you know, I'm taking care of myself in these ways, but what, what am I actually missing here? Right. Because if the secret sauce of life is actually in our connections and our relationships and kind of the people out there, maybe I should just eat beforehand, but I'm gonna show up for them. And it is this where are you making the effort? Where are you showing up? And so I, you know, just, it's great to have glowing skin and great hair and, you know, doing yoga. And all that, and I think but you you, you can't look at that as the primary focus and outside of all of these other things that connect us to the world and other people. And I think that's where, you know, more success or um, the connections or, you know, the… I always say happiness doesn't come from within, it comes from doing things with and for others and in the service of something else.
0: So you mentioned happiness. There's a great line from Mike Norton, the Harvard professor at Revitalize a couple years ago. He said, if you don't think money can buy happiness, you're just not spending it right.
1: (laughs) I love that. I love that. So, what
0: do you think about that?
1: Well, I mean, look, definitely, I think it's, I think it's seventy. Seventy-five um, is the yeah, limit, right? Yeah, the cut-off.
0: Is cut off. So, like, how would you spend if you've got some just a little disposable income or, or, or a little versus a lot? Like, how would you, if someone's like, okay, I've got some money to spend, how can I Absolutely. spend on happiness? Where should I spend?
1: You know, certainly, I mean, if I'm just going to talk about the individual, like, experiences rather than on stuff, I mean, there's tons of research around that kind of thing and just sort of a lot of people say, you know, um, especially when you speak to people who, like the elderly, like, what did you wish you had done more? And a lot of the time is they they had spent money, they'd traveled and seen the world and not kind of been waiting, you know, until this happens or until that happens, like just actually making choices to sort of expand their worlds and they wish they had traveled more. But the other part is you know, making a difference with it, mm-hmm. you know, using it in ways um, I think that, that can you know, contribute to the world. And I, I overheard this elderly gentleman, very successful, who's in the real estate world, talking to a younger gentleman about, who's also in real estate. And the younger one was saying, oh, what are you buying these days? Tell me what buildings, right. like, what are you interested in? And he said, oh, wrong question. Don't ask me what I'm buying, ask me what I'm giving. <laughs> and he had just, it was really kind of this wonderful moment though of like that's what matters to him, you know, is what's his legacy, like what is he giving? Right. Where is he contributing? And he's been extremely generous I think with, you know, many institutions in New York and that's what he wanted to talk about, that's right. what matters, you know. Right. And, um, and I think yes, for him probably, I think his money has bought him a lot of happiness and gratification and being able to spend it um, in ways that he knows he's, he's making a dent in other people's lives and you know sending kids to medical school and you know he's at Emerson line like if you can if one person can just breathe a little bit more easily because right. of you that's success and I, I think that that is success
0: so what are some of your most memorable or happiest experiences
1: I'd say in those like kind of little micro moments you know of of things I have to say I, I love to travel and you know, I went to Antarctica last year that was amazing and uh, that that was just, um, you know, if ever I'm having a bad day, to have those memories to, I think, look back on to are really kind of um, important, you know, getting married, having my kids, and it's in those little micro moments of the day with my kids as well right. that I, I spend, I work, but, I, you know, on weekends spending time together, just these little moments of kind of pausing and thinking, I'm so lucky and trying to kind of take a snapshot in my mind of, you know, in... in of their ages at this moment, that they're not, you know, trying to go to nightclubs or something, (laughs) that this has got to be really good. But also in those little connections, I think, with people, when I was working really hard as an intern at the hospital, a a family had given me, their their mother had died there, and and we'd taken, taken good care of her, and it was really emotional for everybody, and the family was always at her bedside, and I'd received a letter they sent me several weeks later thanking me, and it was something I kept in the in my white coat because you wear a white coat everywhere, and I would just hang on to it. Like occasionally, right. if I was having like a bad day, and I would just sort of feel it, and it got sort of crumpled up and and t- worn to shreds. But it's in those like little moments, in these sort of little micro connections with other people, that that's kind of where I find these pockets of. So,
0: so you mentioned kids. Colleen and I are new parents. We have a couple month old daughter. Uh, any advice? Like, what if you had like one or two tips, sound bites for new parents who want to raise an amazing, kind, loving child? Like, what, what, what does science say? What do you I say? What does science say? Or what do you say? And my
1: favorite book is called Free Range Kids. It's like yep. the anti helicopter parent by Lenore Skenazy, who I love, and. What I love when you watch kids, first of all, what are you going to learn from your kids? Right. I'd say that's kind of number one in this idea that, you know, we have everything to teach them and they have so much to teach us. Right. And that ability to kind of, I think it, it's um, Andrew Solomon who said, we're we're also proud of how different we are from our parents but can't help but be a little bit sad about how different they are from us and letting go of that need to make them into mini-me's because it's natural, it's human, but kind of, you know, letting them teach us about who they are and what they're doing and the astonishing kind of curiosity in a child that, you know, I think a lot of the kind of the, the way we live sort of extinguishes it. You know of like there you know you see these four or five year olds like, why is this guy blue? Why is this? And it sort of drives their parents insane right. with the questioning, like the relentless questioning. But by like middle school, they sort of stop asking questions. And maybe it's because we live in this kind of you know one answer world. Or we know better, parents kind of trying to impart something to them, and to cultivate that curiosity, to encourage it, to allow it, to even, you know, let them get them used to skin their needs. So
0: use that example, child asks, like, why is the sky blue? Like, what is the, in this day and age, do you say, like, do you just tell them or do you say, like, well, let's go to Google and look together and you can find out? (laughs) Like, how do you, for like a question like that, what's the right way to answer it to, if we're talking about work ethic and curiosity, like, how do you answer that in a way that encourages...
1: Well, first of all, I mean, I think like the idea, especially if you're at a dinner table, like n- n- that that impulse to turn to Google that is the all-knowing. Right. I mean, look, we all, <laughs> we all know this, and we all worship Google. But at the same time, to you know, engage in the exercise of thought, of long, you know, kind of you know, long thought is that that sort of tack- tackling a question. Well, why do you think it is? You know, what what could what could be causing that? And one of the most humbling experiences I've had with kids is when they'll ask me a question and I'm convinced I know the answer. I'm like, well, I'm so glad you asked me about why blood is red or, you know, something I should as a doctor know about. And then, about thirty seconds into what I think is going to be an excellent, excellent explanation, I realize I don't really have a satisfying answer, and how little I know about this thing that I assumed I knew so much about. So, what is
0: it? <laughs> so, let's say if we role play. If I say I'm a, a one year old or two year old, and I say, you know, why is the sky blue? What, what would you say? How do you answer that? You
1: know, why do you like? You know, probably a bunch of reasons. You know, I'll tell you mine, but you tell me one first and make it a game Got it. Got it. you know like why do you think it is you know maybe he thinks somebody painted you know right. it or maybe you know your daughter will say well you know maybe there's some bluebird sprinkled right. you know dust all over there But to kind of cultivate that creativity and imagination because there's a lot of reason to think that we've seen you know as iqs are going up every generation like every 10 years or so that creativity is dropping
0: yeah well how do you cultivate that
1: and um and you know one of the reasons is because we live in a one answer world maybe that people give or maybe our education system sort of lends itself to that where you've got to take these standardized tests and you know that kids are really living in their own heads instead of in their bodies like in the world and you know there's much less Free time. There's scheduled playdates and play classes, and right. you don't need to do any of that. Let a kid learn how to, you know, occupy themselves, right. to sit down and get bored, and not, you know, have even like by, you know, five years old they're they're doing ballet or they're well, doing. How, this how do you do that in sport? like a
0: city like New York, where it's like you got the preschool, which is the feeder to this school and that's the feeder to that school, and next thing you know they're in, you know, it's, it's like playdates like, and,
1: and right and, and like how
0: do you do that in this city?
1: I think you have to. I was so determined to like, kind of like fight that black hole, and I got so sucked into it to the point I found myself when my son was in kindergarten. It's six in the morning, up at this hockey rink, and on a Saturday morning, like lugging this huge hockey bag, and these kids could hardly skate, and they all burst into tears when the other team won, and they're falling all over the ice, and the most blessed thing happened, my son broke his arm from jumping off his bunk (laughs) bed, you know, three days later, and, you know, a bunch of different pieces though, but, so he couldn't do hockey anymore, and this was something I'd sworn that I was not going to, you know, get sucked into, you know, like, Monday Mandarin, Tuesday, you know, computer, and all these different things, and he had to stay home, and he sort of picked his nose a lot with a hand that wasn't broken, and taught himself how to read, and has this love of reading now. So I think that kind of being forced Kids are so adaptive and resilient right. in that way. It's sort of like he couldn't do that thing he really did want to do. But then it really didn't make sense. At such a young age, right. it really doesn't make sense to be doing that kind of travel sports right. and you know doing that kind of thing. And letting them get bored, to occupy their own minds, to use their imagination, to play. There's so much, um, there's a wonderful book um, by Erica Christakis about the importance of play and right. how we've taken it away from kids, and it's also structured now. If kids you know, have nothing to do and someone gives them a ball, they'll sort of look around and be like, but who's the coach? Who's gonna organize the team? Right. And you know, I think when we were growing up, you were sort of allowed to roam free a little more. And um, even in New York, it's never been safer here.
0: So what do you think, you know, you, you're very educated. You, you've done, yeah, you've checked don't the don't body you, you're you very educated. <laughs> okay. uh, what do you think, is education going in the right way or the wrong way? Like I'm hearing I have more friends in LA and California. They're creating their own schools. They're homeschooling, different curriculums. Like what do we have? Like where do you think education's going to be? We have this discussion with friends. Like what's college going to be like in 10 years or 20 years? Is it going to be non-existent or just a thing that some people do who want to become attorneys or whatever it may be or is it really well, attorneys
1: even exist anymore you know right. i mean any of the jobs like i'm not sure if i will have a job you know i'm, I'm no you will but this I, I went to an interesting uh dinner the other night about ai and um hi like you know and how ai is really changing everything and i sat next to this really smart young gentleman who'd gone to mit and I asked him about like what he actually thought about education, and he said, "Well, when I have kids, you know, I don't think I'll probably send my kids to college because they'll just be able to download all that information." Right. And so this notion just sort of floored me to like kind of reimagine the ability, to, you know, to just kind of think differently because the the conversation was really about having um, cognitive enhancement and right. that we'll be able to have to change our brains and really cognitively enhance ourselves, but. So what will education be? I think we just, certainly we don't know, but having, I think, creativity and imagination and that ability to sort of zigzag between different um, domains. And I think a lot of colleges are really trying to do that now, but imagination, creativity, and then that perseverance side of it. Like, what's the follow through? So
0: what do you think technology is doing to kids right now, particularly social media?
1: It's it's really scary and it's really sad when you see these like little kids walking around with screens and don't please don't let it Ellie get a screen for a really long time, and look I think for a lot of parents it becomes a bit of a babysitter and you know moms are on the phone all the time because sometimes they're a little lonely too and they're pushing their kids around or spending time with them on the phone and that there's language delays in a lot of kids and right. the, there's a, some would argue that that's because their parents aren't actually interacting right. and making baby voices and little sounds right. so. You know, and it's funny how in um, on the West Coast a lot of those a lot of the people who've given us all this technology are sending their kids to the Waldorf schools that are right, very, right. you know, you know, you learn fractions not by an app, but you're cutting up an apple, you know. Right. So that kind of really hands-on right. engaged learning. So I wish I had an answer for that and I have to say I don't know.
0: So what's like the most exciting thing you're seeing right now with like new research on psychology, positive psychology that like where things are going or maybe counterintuitive?
1: Yeah. Now, I think there's a real interest or you know, maybe I have to be careful of the own bubble I'm living in, but in in wellness, you know, outside of that kind of you know, self-care sure. domain though, and how we're thinking about you know looking at like, you know nutrition, exercise, sleep, like in those domains that like, psychiatrists hadn't really looked at before, right. unless they were focused on a you know that those were problems for for right. somebody, and you know doing rigorous studies looking at like what are the benefits of these kinds of things and the diets that are associated with health, looking at you know gut health and brain health. I think is really an exciting. Um, you know, kind of part of the future and that the the future of psychiatry, a lot of it will be in, you know, those kind of wellness domains. But the one that, you know, is sort of near and dear to my heart is, again, that kind of um, engagement in the world and with other people and looking at that as a really, as a driving force and kind of helping people learn the skills. You know, we go to school to learn all these things, but like not how to be in a relationship, how to be a good friend, you know, how to kind of add value and how to, we know that purpose seems to. Um, be so valuable? How can we prescribe purpose to our patients um, and give them a sense of sort of, you know, that life being worth living? We know know what the headwinds are, you know, if it's depression or stress or whatever, but how do we give them more tailwinds, I think, is a way to think about it.
0: How do you define purpose?
1: You know, I think that sense of kind of having that reason to wake up in the morning, you know, that's something that, that is beyond you. That is gratifying in some way, and it's you're just like a part of it. And looking at stories of of, um, of resilient, you know, young mm-hmm. people, children who seem to have a sense of their family history, like the arc of kind of where they come from, the trials and tribulations, like the you know, what their great grandparents faced, how they got through that seem to be more resilient than kids who don't. A lot of kids don't like it's so it's so focused on the child like how are you? Do you like this food? Is it good? What do you <laughs> want to do? You know, and actually like, you know, putting them a, not I'm not saying sideline them or going back to victorian sort of, you know, ages and leaving them up in, you know, the attic, but you know, letting them see that they're part of something much right. bigger. And, and I think that kind of that's where the kind of purpose and resilience are tied together
0: so someone listening or watching and they they're like purpose <laughs> right. how do I get it
1: <laughs> here's the phone number yeah no I'll, I'll deliver it to you go to Google <laughs> and no it's um it's funny it's often through the back door you know like it's not like that obvious thing of like I need purpose and here you go but I I, I you know maybe it's too too much of um you know, my thoughts around, like, kind of adding value. But it seems to be over and over again that that's where kind of purpose emerges for people. And the, I think it was AARP created this program for for seniors at a high school who were having trouble with their college applications. And they had, it was a huge class. And, you know, there was like one college counselor. So they thought, okay, let's go out to the community. And who doesn't have a whole lot to do? Well, these senior citizens don't, and let's find some who went to college and get them to help these seniors with their applications and help them write essays and, you know, mock an interview. And uh, and so it actually worked very well. It was it was really helpful to the senior class that you know had um, it didn't have you know enough college counselors. But the the unexpected side effect or byproduct of this was the improvement in the sort of mental and physical health even of the senior citizens who participated. And they, I think 80% said it improved their life satisfaction because they kind of had this sense of purpose. And so that's where I mean when I say it's sort of through the back door sometimes because it's not, wasn't obviously, when it wasn't obvious to them. It's this idea
0: of of real connections with people and and helping others. It's not just about you.
1: Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> it's that like Walt Whitman, um, that end of that end of, uh, oh Me, a oh life poem. It's sort of, you have to contribute a verse, you know? Right. And I don't think you have to write the whole hymn. You know, where the prayer book or something. Right. But where are you going to contribute a verse?
0: So, so maybe not for some people the answer, and maybe for sometimes it is. Is do like the eat, pray, love thing, where you're like, I'm going to go meditate in the in India or the woods and and cleanse myself, and and maybe there's a little bit of that, but maybe an alternative is like, I'm going to go help people.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think 100. percent And then I look, I think you you know, you also the, the flip side of that is you sometimes get people who like work at nonprofits or right. who are you know, they're um, doing things that are only about helping people and really not taking care of themselves, themselves either. So right. you have the, uh, the flip side of it or totally burned out. I mean, certainly in medicine, you sure. see internists who kind of lose sight of that sense of purpose. And that's where, you know, I think where you're kind of living your values, you know, embodying them every day. And, and it's an exercise that I sometimes ask patients to do is kind of think about what do you value most in your life? What are those right. three things and how are they manifesting themselves in your life? Because if there isn't a whole lot of overlap, it's gonna really help you to kind of create an overlap and kind of you know, walk your walk you know, and, and spend your time and let it manifest in ways that really embody your values. And I think that's, that's sort of a, a way to kind of connect with a sense of purpose.
0: So if you could wave your magic wand and, and pick up a medical journal that, that would have, give you the information that like you're dying to know right now, what would that, what would that be?
1: I am absolutely fascinated by the benefits of hobbies. And it sounds really old fashioned, but I love this idea because I was interviewing somebody the other day for a job and I asked them about their hobby and they looked at me like I was crazy. And I thought, oh my, do I sound like an old lady asking somebody like, do you collect stamps, young lady? And, <laughs> and that I realized there's like the death of the hobby, that people don't have hobbies anymore as much as they used to. and because they work, 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 you know, all the right. time, and then when they're not kind of working, they're you know, chilling. It's like sort of right. chilling Netflix, like you know, or, or they're on social media yep. and sort of absorbing all of um, you know, Twitter, or Facebook, or Snapchat or Instagram. And so there's just sort of that's what their free time is really spent doing a lot of and. My hunch is that hobbies are the, like the truest form of love because you're just doing it for the love of the right. game and it creates what um, you know that sense of flow mm-hmm. like where you lose time where you're just so engaged in whatever that thing is that you do it if it's needle pointing or um, hiking or something where you you just love it and You know, if you look at these studies of people who have won Nobel Prizes in the sciences, there's often this, um, they have hobbies in the arts. Like they would do watercolors, they would play the piano. They would do things that they just loved to do because it was really engaging. And I think, again, it's sort of about getting out of your own head. And instead of finding yourself, lose yourself, you know, in a hobby or something. That um, can sometimes even be a backdoor to purpose as right. well. But I, I'm really interested in this idea of the hobby, and I'm thinking I might start prescribing hobbies for people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, last question: If if you could go back in time and give your 20-something self advice, what would that advice be?
1: I think it's going to be okay. I, I wish. I mean, gosh, you know, you always think of like the wisdom that I had now. But I think well-being is a verb that you're gonna to have to, you know, not strive necessarily, but, yeah, it's make the effort, right. and, you know, keep at it, and you'll be able to kind of connect the breadcrumbs, and even of the mistakes, or the missteps, you know, and the disappointments, and a, a friend of mine says that whenever sort of somebody, like where she's been disappointed, or in some in some body in her life, like she thinks that she should send them flowers, right. because it's been this learning experience, and when you can kind of look back on, anything is as, as growth and all those times that you really thought you sort of, it was too hard that, you know, to give yourself the courage to make it through and that I'm grateful that I think I've learned from experience, not a hundred percent, but always that question, that kind of what if mm-hmm. is what, one that I always like to keep right. in my head, like, because what if takes me to what's next rather than kind of looking back, like, what if I do this? Like, What if I can change that? And I, I wish I had known that question then.
0: Amazing. thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so where everyone can find you everyone has to go to positiveprescription.com and social media. What are your hand what are all the handles?
1: It's um it's it, Sam BMD and positive prescription.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks guys.